0: If one tout is good, two must be better. We'll talk with Jason Collette of Rotowire and the Process Report and Brent Hershey, GM of content at BaseballHQ.com, both next on BaseballHQ HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. <laughs> and here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April 26th. It's show number 21 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davit your host, and we do have another great Tuesday show for you. For the first time, we'll have two Tuesday touts. All we need is eight lords a-leaping and a partridge. We'll talk with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Process Report about slow starting pitchers, strikeout surgers, Jesus Montero, his studs and duds, and more. And then we'll have Brent Hershey, the General Manager of Content at BaseballHQ.com, to talk about his early first-time experience in head-to-head fantasy baseball, where, by the way, he's off to a very impressive start. It's another big Tuesday tout show. Just by counting experts, it's our biggest Tuesday tout show ever. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've got two Tuesday touts. we got to talk some baseball. And leading off the first inning of this Tuesday tout edition, Jason Collette from Roto-Wire and the excellent Rays blog, The Process Report. Jason, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while.
1: Yes, it has been. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing fine. Uh, How are your teams doing, more importantly?
1: Oh, not too bad. I'm uh, in the top three in AL Telt Wars, which uh, has helped. uh, The pitching staff that I paid $100 to put together has uh, performed rather well. Um, The only part of that staff that hasn't worked out is that $18 I invested on Ken Giles. Oops. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, the staff's worked out really well, and in labor, uh, not so good. Losing Carlos Carrasco um, has not helped, and then the uh, the poor performance of some of our highly drafted hitters has got us sitting middle of the pack, and in my home leagues, um, second place in my NL league, and about and fifth or sixth place in my AL, so overall, pretty good start.
0: In the tout American League uh league that both of us are in I'm actually right behind you in most of those pitching categories nip and tuck and wins and stuff and uh, I think I spent $40 or something on pitching and I thought I was going to run away with the hitting and, and I'm like second to last in all those hitting categories Miguel Cabrera st- just finally hit a couple of home runs the other night but I got uh, Justin Upton's killing me and uh, all my top dollar guys uh, really aren't coming through and then I'm not getting any help from the bottom except Jared Saltalamac is hitting home runs so I have a long way to go but I've got guys coming back from injury and stuff so yeah you know it's it's early and I think I've got a team that can compete uh, and I hope I can track you down before the year is over. Uh, speaking of pitchers and speaking of slow starts although two different things a bit you were really high on Shane Green coming into the year but of course he hasn't pitched very well uh, ERA is over six a whip around 140 11 strikeouts to nine walks last time I checked and well under uh, um, zero dollar value at Baseball HQ and now he's left his last start he's got a finger problem that harkens back maybe to some early earlier issues he had are you still in on shane green
1: so what i wanted to find really high like i was mad that ron Chandler took him for two dollars at the end game because i wanted him in the reserve round so i he wasn't somebody that i was willing to i would have spent two bucks had i had it but at my last four dollar spot was on a ramirez so so far i've paid one dollar per win and that's worked out really well yeah. uh, but i wanted to get him so i was high on him as a bounce back only because his value was I believe he was the second-least valuable pitcher in all of fantasy baseball last year. So it's like, okay, you can't go any lower. Let's see how much you can come up. And a big thing with him last year, he, he, he struggled so much because he couldn't feel the baseball in his hand. I mean, this nerve, end, this nerve issue that he ended up having surgery on last year, it's really tough to throw your pitches if you can't feel them. And you go look at when he threw the spin rate on his pitch, the, 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 the way it goes is the more the ball spins, the more it moves. Well, his fastball spin rates were great, but his breaking ball—and he needs those. His fastball is good, but it's not a great one. But he has to have his breaking ball and his changeup, you know, field pitches. Well, he didn't have the spin rate on those pitches, so they weren't as good as they were in 2014 when he was doing a great job out of the Yankees bullpen with it. And then early, you know, his for in spring training looked good. His first start against the Pirates, everything looked good. Uh, and then he had that game against the Royals and. Anybody had him, I had him, in one, I have him in one league. I sat him that week. I'm like, I am not starting him against Kansas City, uh, and then so I didn't get the damage uh, of last week, Kansas City, and then he left the Cleveland start with the with the blister. It looks like, um, so it, it's one of these things where the numbers don't look good, but I, I encourage you to watch him pitch. And if you can go back and watch that Pittsburgh game, when you watch somebody do what he's doing in that game, they're like, how do I not have this guy in my roster? This, this week was a bad week matchup-wise just for the Kansas City one alone. Um, that's just not a, a good matchup for him. The Cleveland one I would have taken um, if the Kansas City one wouldn't have been so bad. But go watch him pitch and look at it and, and you know, tell me I'm foolish uh, for wanting to have this guy on my team the rest of the way. So that's where i am with him
0: it's funny you should mention feel pitches because of course the problem that he has is that he could literally couldn't feel his pitches
1: yeah exactly and that's it's like a thoracic if you heard some guys with like thoracic thoracic outlet syndrome uh where they usually shave a rib down or something there's some kind of impingement uh up there alex cobb has had it in, in the past there's been a couple other guys um, that have had the issue as well but you know, the, for a guy when your fastball is just there you can command it it's one thing but you have to have your other pitches Uh, And the fact that his other pitchers were just rolling up to the plate last year is why he was getting bombed as he was. And, again, I I talk about his last start in spring training was against the everyday Baltimore Oriole lineup, but he struck out nine of those guys and looked good doing it. And his first start this year was against Pirates, and he put a hat trick on Andrew McCutcheon. He got Sterling Marte, and he got a couple other guys. And if you're putting a hat trick on uh, Andrew McCutcheon, you're doing something really well.
0: As a rule, Jason, how much rope should a fantasy owner give to a speculative, somewhat of a sleeper guy like Shane Green would have been coming into this year versus a more established quality starter? How quick are you on the trigger to get him off your roster?
1: I'm very slow to get a guy off my roster. So, I mean, with if we think back to the, the rule Corey Schwartz has always talked about, where, you know, take the, the, the round you drafted the guy in and subtract that from 26. So if you, let's say you got, let's say I got Shane Green in the first round of the reserves. So that would be the 24th round. 26 minus 24, you give them two weeks. Uh, so you kind of go by that theory. That's always been a really good rule of thumb that, that I uh, like to use. And then I get a lot of questions. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of, hey, should I trade player X for player Y? And my theory, especially in the first month of the season, if player, if you had player X rated lower than player Y that you're trying to acquire, then go ahead and try to make a trade offer. That's really, I I haven't seen enough from anybody except for a few guys that see some strikeout rate changes. But other than that, we don't have enough of a sample size to say this guy is definitely going to do this the rest of the way and this guy is going to stink the rest of the way. Just go back to your preseason rankings. If you you have X and you want Y and you had them ranked uh, that different, make the offer and improve your team. It's, it's a guy that you wanted at draft day but you couldn't get, Maybe you can get them now because somebody's pressing a panic button.
0: I think that's excellent advice. Something else that I do on my rosters is uh, I mark down guys that I got at the auction, especially in single league formats because I had to versus because I wanted to, and the guys I had to, I'm a little quicker to get rid of if something else seems to come along that looks better. But if it's a guy I was confident about and ch- and really got after in the auction, I'm definitely going to give him the benefit of the doubt longer than someone you know oh oh I've got to get a I've got to get that last middle infielder, and he's the only one left kind of guy yeah, absolutely. Speaking of quality starters, uh, as we headed into draft this year, a lot of us were in on Chris Archer of Tampa. He got a spirited bidding war going on at Tout AL, and indeed, he was being priced just under, I think, just, just under the elite guys, I think 26 or $27 at AL Tout, and uh, indeed, I think this to, to say his season has not been good so far is to be charitable. He's got an ERA over seven. His WHIP is over two, and man, when was the last time we saw that? He's a minus six dollar player so far because he does have strikeouts. You follow the Rays and uh, and uh, Chris Archer pretty closely. What's going on here?
1: Um, a, a couple of things with him, and in overall, I'm I'm still concerned. I mean, the the most recent outing against Baltimore, uh, statistically. Look like Vintage Archer. Ten strikeouts, no walks, no runs, scattered five hits over six and I believe six and two thirds. So that's where his numbers were. But if you, uh, some of the good things that come out of the most recent start, uh, I was incredibly encouraged by his use of the changeup. It has been a pitch that he has toyed with in recent years, but he's always, he's never stuck with it. And one of the things that's always frustrated me with him is he would. Pick up that pitch. Let's say there's two guys on base. Let's say David Ortiz is at the plate. Red Sox have two guys on base and he's ahead in the count 1 2 and then he's decided he's going to toy with the, he's going to throw his first changeup of the game to that guy and he hits a three-run homer and then the changeup stays in his back pocket and he never uses it again or he'll hang it to a guy oh 02 to a bottom place hitter like a Josh Toley and Josh Toley will hit it out on him so it's been and he'll use it once but if anything poor happens to it it's gone well last you know in the start against Baltimore one of the things I liked is he threw. He was throwing changeups to right-handed batters, and that's one of the things. You know, Eno Serres wrote about it at FanGraphs earlier in April, and talked about the increased usage of the same-handed changeup. So a righty throwing changeups to righty is typically not something that's happening. But last night Archer did it. If we think back to if we think back to what happened uh, the last time he faced Baltimore, he gave up four home runs and it was his thing. He said after the game, Hey, I uh the fastball slider combination, they were all over it. They've seen it a lot for me, so I'm gonna do something different. And watching that game, that right on right changeup, he was getting swings and misses from Adam Jones, which I know is not that difficult, but still, <laughs> I mean Chris Archer has been struggling this year. Um you got him for Chris Davis, he got him from Jonathan Scope, I mean he got him from Manny Machado. He threw a ninety one mile an hour sinking change up to Manny Machado. It looked Terrific. So that part of the game I liked, that he was willing to use the changeup, stuck with the changeup, threw at um, the righties. The fastball command was better, uh, but it, there's still room for improvement. He's having trouble commanding his fastball to his arm side. So if he's throwing fastballs to the lefties, they're running away, and they're running away and up, which speaks to a mechanical issue. Uh, and then for, for righties, a lot of them were running in. Um, and then the, the slider, that, this to me is the most concerning thing because the slider for Chris Archer has always been the backstop. If the fastball command was struggling, or if he was afraid to use his changeup, he could always snap off a slider and locate it wherever he wanted to. Um, that still is not the case this year. The slider is rolling up to the plate more than having that, that sharp that sharp cut and that depth to the pitch and you know last night he got uh swings and misses jonathan scope chased a ridiculous one way out of the strike zone chris davis went down fishing for that but other than that there were like two swings and misses up in the zone uh chris uh, mark trumbo did one just off the edge of the zone and joey rickard uh, did a rule five guy uh, just looked at, looked like he was looking fastball, and all of a sudden adjusted late but i thought a real telling sign was joey rickard himself archer threw him a bunch of sliders And Rickard only swung at one of them. Last year, that was, I mean, everybody was chasing that slider. And then this year in that game last night, people were just spitting on it. I think there were uh, 26 sliders, and I think there were eight swings on the pitch. Uh, So a lot of guys are just taking the slider because they know he can't command it. And if if there's a mistake, he's going to punch it. So statistically, he looked really good in this last outing, but I don't think he's out of the woods yet.
0: Now, you mentioned he has in the past been uh, pretty reliant on his slider, I think, usually around the 35%, 36% range the last couple of years for, for his slider. That's a lot of sliders, and there are people who think, with good reason, I believe, that heavy slider usage presages problems with the elbow in particular. Are you concerned about a possible um, injury situation uh, hiding, lurking underneath all of this, uh, all of these performance issues?
1: Well, yeah, I am, and this, we, we actually Paul Spohr and I caught a little bit of flack on Twitter about uh, the start, uh, the previous start that uh, Archer had, had. We said that. We we're like, you know what? It wouldn't be, We, we, we sensed the DL stint in his future uh, just because what you think of is arm issues the shoulder is your velocity engine that's where so if you got a drop in velocity it typically indicates something's up with your shoulder if you lose command like uh, like archer was it typically indicates something with the elbow and archer does you know high velocity high slider are two of the biggest markers for injury if if folks haven't read uh, you know, haven't seen the work that Jeff Zimmerman has done over at Fangraphs uh, on this, or if you haven't, got Jeff Passan's book, The Arm. Highly recommend it because it talks a lot about all these. But high slider and high fastball, two of the leading red flags for uh, increased injury risk. So th- that's why I say that I don't think Archer is out of the woods. I- I'm still not convinced he's 100%. Um, and, when I, and when I watch that slider and the lack of fastball command, I, again encouraged by last night but i'm not thoroughly convinced um, we're out of the woods with him
0: and he's uh, just now 27 years old he's been in the league what for five years or so uh, he's been in the league since 2012 so he started fairly young he's got a fair amount of innings and a lot of sliders on that arm i think that there's a possibility there but overall the high strikeout rate continues are you confident that archer's basic underlying skills assuming there is not an injury problem make him a good bet for a rebound
1: uh, if he can hold the changeup, uh, if the slider's going to act the way it is, if he's going to stick with the changeup, and if he gives up some collateral damage on it and not bail on it, because he has to have that pitch. Part of the issue here uh, of late has been that with with – I mentioned the fastball command, leaving stuff up, so you're, you're throwing 94 to 96 up, and then if he's elevating a slider, which is typically about 91, and it's also up, then you've got two pitches within five-mile-an-hour velocity, so not too much of a velocity difference, but they're at the same eye level. They're at the same pitch plane, so that was one of the factors last night. I mentioned that he threw a 91 change to, uh, to Machado, but it was down in the zone and fading out, so now you're changing eye level, so you've got to have something to keep pitch Look at pitches uh, batters looking down, so you can see some stuff above them, or vice versa. Get, get them looking up and then come down with it. Uh, but if he bails on that pitch because he's not comfortable with it and goes back to the two pitch repertoire, the way it is right now, um, no, I don't. I don't want him like this. I recommended sitting him um, this week, and he goes out and throws six two thirds shutout innings. So yeah, yay me, I look kind of foolish. But you look at those first four starts and tell me you had any confidence in him.
0: I-, I sure didn't uh, i don't have him on my roster god knows i tried in every draft i was in but i got outbid at every turn and uh of course it's like you said it's only a couple of weeks in and he could still end up being terrific but uh for now i'm pretty happy about it it's baseball hq radio patrick david with jason collette from rotowire and the process report and jason at rotowire you have a, a series of articles called Colette calls i you know i only got the joke like two days ago when I was reading that and I said oh I get it it's like collect calls I get it you discussed four strikeout surgers in the early season I thought this was really interesting and I'd like to talk about two of them one in each league the extremely surprising Drew Pomerantz of the Padres has been a $14 baseball HQ pitcher so far he's got a two ERA 113 whip 25 strikeouts against just nine walks in 18 innings his DOM rate twelve point seven strikeouts per nine. This all looks really good, but I'm leery because I still see all those walks, and uh, and his DOM history is more like eight something strikeouts per nine than twelve something strikeouts per nine. What's your opinion on Drew Pomeranz and especially his chances of sustaining this great start?
1: So I, I, I liked him quite a bit coming into the season. He was one of uh one of my targets. It was funny as I did the uh, the, the first pitch forum event in Atlanta. Uh, you know, Brent sent out the slide notes about the NL bullpen situation because part of that part of that uh, presentation was that Drew Pomeranz was a bullpen target for San Diego. This was prior to him being put in the rotation, uh, and I, it, it, it was, I sent him a note back saying this is funny because these notes match exactly what my my draft plans were. Anyhow, because Pomeranz was right at the top of the list of the guy that I like because he did so well out of that Oakland bullpen last year uh and then so far this year he added one of the things he did in the season is you know he added a new pitch talked about, I'm going to throw a cutter, and now he's throwing his changeup more, so he's got a, a bigger bag of tricks. When you're a reliever, if you're only coming in for an inning, inning a half, two, you can just max out with two pitches. There's no real reason to go out there and throw multiple pitches, because you can max out your velocity and, and throw as hard as you want for 20 pitches and be out. But if you're a starting pitcher, you got to open up your bag a little bit and use some more pitches. So that's what is doing. Um, you know, the walk rate, When I when I go back and look at his walks, he's got 12 of them this year. Um, but some of those are at the bottom of the order. Nine of his twelve have been with nobody on base, so it's not. So the damage he's been able to limit the damage in that regard, uh, and you expect a little bit of a bump in walk rate anyhow, because you know he's he's going to try to pitch around the number eight hitter to get to the pitcher in the in the games in the National League anyhow. So I expected a little more of that, but these the skills were there last year for him. And they're sticking through this year. My only concern is he's never thrown more than – he's never had a 100-inning season at the major league level. He's 27 years old, so this is one of these guys where if I had him, as much as I'd like him, I'm marketing him to try to get somebody I know that I can get 160-plus innings out of uh, for the overall season because I don't expect Drew Pomeranz to last that long.
0: In the American League, you discussed in that same Colette Calls article at RotoWire, Rick Porcello of Boston, another big surprise, $14 so far. Uh, He's just won another game the other night against Atlanta. He's got 11.2 strikeouts per nine, which is a big jump for him. It was like 7.8, I think, was his previous high. Again, the question is, uh, Rick Porcello looks really good, but can he keep it up?
1: I mean, here's the thing with him, and... It gets back to the whole spring training thing. He looked horrendous in spring training. Uh, Just absolutely terrible. Uh, But if you go back and look, when he came off the disabled list last year, August 31st, the way he closed out the year, he started doing this. He came up, and he was using his fastball more. There's been a couple of things with Rick Porcello. It, It feels... Here's one of the trivia bits I heard the other day. It feels like he's been around the league forever, but did you know that Rick Porcello was actually younger than Chris Harcher? Uh, wow. <laughs> but he's been he's been around in baseball since 2010. I'm sorry, 2009. Um, so he's been around the league forever, but one of the things with him is the strikeouts have always been problematic, um, and getting out lefties has always been an issue for him. Well, since last September, he's been working a lot more with his fastball and getting strikeouts off that pitch, and he's doing it again this year. And then, you know, Kristen Vasquez is the catcher he was working with uh, last year. Uh, he threw to Blake Swihart in his first game, but he's had uh, he's had Vasquez the last couple. But Vasquez must be hey, throw me more fastballs. And that's one of the things the backup, even the backup catcher Ryan Hannigan from his days in Tampa Bay. I remember he was really big on, on working off and establishing that fastball. So he's getting that done, and he's really doing a good job of limiting the damage against lefties this year. I think he's allowed. Two hits in, the, in four games now against lefties is something really low like that. So if this, if this issue uh, of, of pitching well against lefties is something he can sustain, and the, 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 we've got enough of a sample size to say, okay, this new approach by Porcello is clearly working to get strikeouts. It's not just a matter of facing a bad Atlanta lineup because he struck out uh, eight uh, Tampa Bay batters. He struck out seven Toronto. Uh, you go back to September. He had another seven game against Tampa, another seven game against Toronto. So he's getting his strikeouts, um, and that's a team that uh, Boston that can put up runs on you. So it feels like Porcello could be one of those guys this year that ends up with fifteen. You're looking back at like, how did he win fifteen games and strike out 150 guys? But that's the kind of pace he's on right now.
0: And uh, kind of the ace of my staff in tout American League, so uh, really pleased about that. But his ERA going into the game against the Braves, which he pitched, I think, six and a third shutout innings, his ERA was uh, over 4.5, and, a half, and I, at the same time, his whip was .93, and our mutual friend Todd Zola says the whip should be the driver of ERA, and if you have a very low whip and a very high ERA, then something's wrong with the ERA. Uh, do you... Concur with that, and uh, do you believe that the ERA here is too high for Rick Porcello, the whip is too low for Rick Porcello, or both?
1: No, I I think part of the issue here is you give up four home runs to Toronto. He had back-to-back starts against Toronto. It's never never a good thing for a pitcher if you face the same team twice right out of the gate. But that's what happened for him. He was on the road for one of those. He was home for one of those. Give up two home runs. I mean, there are worse sins than giving up two home runs to the Toronto Blue Jays. I mean, that's a team that feasts on fastballs, uh, and you you would expect him to give up one in each one of those games. But he ended up giving up two. Uh, So. That's really what's driving, that's what's driving the ERA, because everything else looks good. He's not walking. He's got five walks and 30 strikeouts on the season now. Uh, in 25 and two-thirds innings, he's having fewer hits in innings pitched. It's just those starts against Toronto are always going to be tough. I mean, everybody in that lineup, even, even Josh Tolley has a home run this year. So, truly, everyone in that lineup can hit the ball out of the yard.
0: You mentioned uh, Christian Vasquez, is Rick Porcello benefiting from the Vasquez effect from his uh, receiving and framing skills? I know there's uh, a, a, quite a bit of baseball research going on, especially at the major league level, trying to quantify and value the ability of, of catchers to create p- a good pitcher ERAs through those receiving and framing skills. Is that going on here with Christian Vasquez for Rick Porcello?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, that's one. If we think back to let's go back to Tout Wars weekend and look at the NL Tout Wars. If, you, if you will recall, Derek Cardy drafted just about every Dodger pitcher that was on the roster has ever pitched for the Dodgers and maybe retired for the Dodgers. Uh, but he made a joke, he goes, look, I did it because Yasmani Grandal's framing skills are really good. That was part of his reasoning for drafting so many Dodgers pitchers. Uh, so when you look at, I've seen people try to quote uh, stats like catcher ERA, they'll go to baseball reference and say, hey, when, when... Chris Archer is throwing to Hank Conger, his ERA is this, but if he's throwing to Kirk Casale, it's this, and that must mean Kirk Casale is the better catcher for him. That's garbage. Uh, it, it's really fool's cold science because uh, catcher ERA doesn't do anything about taking the doesn't factor in strength of lineup. There's a whole bunch of things it doesn't factor in. But framing skills is something you can sit there and quantify. Look, if he's stealing this many extra strikes per game, uh, then but, and especially Porcello, because Porcello's not somebody that lives over the heart of the plate. Porcello's got to pitch to the sides of the plate. So if you can get him a really good framer, um, that's going to help him steal a few strikes and do what he's doing. So I do think Christian Vasquez is part of this, uh, but he is that, the, the biggest driver is really the, the pitch selection on what Porcello doing. And, that's, uh, and that, that part of that's credit to Vasquez as well. If he's down there throwing the number one uh, sign down there for him to look at instead of the, uh, instead of the curveball or the changeup, that's going to help.
0: Of course, uh, if Vasquez is all that great, he's not helping David Price much.
1: <laughs> a, you mentioned uh, you know, there's been a lot of starting pitchers that have really stumbled out of the gate, uh, and Price is one of those. You look at some of the other indicators for him, strikeout rates strong, swinging strike rates strong, walk rates really low. And then, but you look at everything else, you're like, what? How is this happening for him? Um, it's just like if you think about his last start, the, the one against Tampa Bay earlier uh, last week, when the fourth inning, everything just fell apart. He hit Brandon Geyer with a fastball, and he was mad that Geyer didn't try to move, and Geyer just stood there and took it. And like everything else in that inning fell apart after that. You sometimes see. You know, guys that get big deals stumble out of the gate. We think back to, like, Albert Pujols when he got his first big deal. Uh, Max Scherzer, when he first got, first got to the Nationals, I think his first couple of starts were rough. Um, those types of things. Um, I have no problem with Price moving forward. It's uh, Just a, a really unfortunate start for him. But you look a lot of the underlying skills, and everything's there.
0: You're an analytics guy. I'm an analytics guy. Most of the people who listen to this podcast believe in analytics and try to try to soft pedal or downplay the the non-analytic side of things that we hear from the broadcast booth all too often. But do you think that there's a possibility that a pitcher can gain confidence because he just trusts his catcher more than uh, if he's out there pitching to somebody who's uh, you know Jesus Montero type of catcher who you can't even trust to catch a fastball over the heart of the plate? And maybe it just makes you feel feel A little more loosey goosey and, and ready to ready to do what he wants you to do because you just believe in him.
1: Well, I admit two things on that. One, if you think back, everybody knows the whole relationship that um, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Greg Maddox liked to throw to uh, the, the backup catcher in Atlanta. He did not like throwing to Javier uh, Lopez. Uh, Javi Lopez, he liked to throw to the backup, and I'm drawing a blank on the backup's name, but that was that was always like his caddy. You hear people talk about caddy, but I absolutely do think that's part of a factor. And I'll go back to the Chris Archer uh, comment I made earlier. It was an off-the-cuff comment, but if you look at the two catchers he gets to throw to, Hank Conger and Kirk Casale, Hank Conger is terrible. He's a good pitch framer, but he's absolutely terrible in throwing out runners. I believe he's allowed 47 consecutive stolen bases. Forty-seven, uh, and so if, you, if I'm Chris Archer on the mound, I got a runner on first base. Now all of a sudden, I got to worry about being a, a tick faster to the plate. So I can get that strike because I know that Congress struggles throwing guys out, and it, again, he's old for the season throwing guys out this year, and so maybe that was part of the factor last night. Casali was behind the plate; uh, nobody attempted the stolen base, but Casali was back there. Um, so maybe it is a factor. Curious to see moving forward if if that becomes a relationship where they. Archer is always throwing to Casale, but I think as far as catches, you have to be comfortable if you know your guy's a a poor thrower back there behind the plate, or you know he's a good thrower behind the plate, um, then that has to play into your head a little bit.
0: Closing out on Rick Porcello, his home run allowed rate is over two homers per nine innings, which is also way above his career norm. Uh, That seems clearly headed for some kind of regression. It's obviously colored by that four-home run outburst against Toronto. If his strikeout per nine should drop somewhat, is he going to get an offsetting benefit regression from the uh, home run rate declining as the, as the K rate possibly declines?
1: Yeah, the home run, the fly ball is 22% right now. That, that's a, absurdly high. I mean, his career high was last year when it was 14.5%. And before that, he had a 14.1. His career rate's around 11%. So you do expect that to come down. And I think the home run rate is probably always going to be a double-digit thing for him with this current approach. You know, more for his fastball is not... Terrific! If he's going to elevate it, I mean, the, he's throwing more sinking fastballs right now. So if, if he elevates and misses, that's that. Those are the ones that are going to hit out. So I would expect his home run rate to remain in the double digits, but not in the twenty percent. It can, it will come down. But even if the strikeout rate does come down, it wasn't like last year was bad. His DOM rate right last year was seven eight, um, and that was a big step up from where it's been in the past, where it's been like five five seven seven, seven two five five, and then last year seven eight, and a lot of that came from the, the changes he made later the season so let's say it settles back a little bit and still ends up in the eight that's still a lot more than you drafted because you go back to projections and a lot of places had Porcello projected for about a six eight to seven
2: two DOM rate
0: yeah i think that's exactly right you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick david with jason collette from Wire and uh Jason, you also write for the Rays blog called The Process Report, which is a really dandy blog. It's very in depth. And recently you looked at lefty Drew Smiley on the Rays. He started the season with 33 strikeouts and five walks in 29 innings. That's tremendous. And you credit this new strikeout ability to a change in his pitch mix, not unlike some of the other pitchers we've talked about, and especially to right handed pitching. What's he doing differently?
1: Him, he's throwing more change ups. It's, it's like a rite of passage when you're in Tampa Bay. Jim Hickey will work with you, um, but eventually you're going to get a change up. Some of these guys are born with, I mean, Jeremy Ellickson had one out of the cradle. You know, Alex Cobb developed that split finger change. He taught it. Uh, he and Hickey worked it and, and gave it to Jake Rizzi. Even Jake McGee was throwing some change ups last year. So everybody gets the change up at some point. And with Drew Smiley, he was starting to throw a few of them in 2014 What after, after he was traded over from Detroit, and then last year got hurt right out of the gate and then didn't come back till later in the, uh, later in the year and, and since the change up's the field pitch it's really tough to you know tell a guy hey go out there and throw some change ups you just got back in the pitching, but go ahead and try to use that field pitch so he used a little bit of them, but this year his change up percentage usage is is up in the low teens where it's never been above three percent so he's, he's clearly using it more and uh, getting back to the archer point it, it's not Archer's going right on right with change. You don't see guys do left on left, and, and Smiley certainly is not in that camp. Smiley does not, has not yet thrown a changeup to a lefty, but one of the things he's doing is he's using it to both sides of the plate. So, uh, he throws from the first base side of the rubber, but yet he's still able to get in on righties, and he's throwing that changeup away. He's sneaking some in, and part of that has to do with his arm angle. He's one of the, tr- he's one of the few true over-the-top pitchers left in the game. A lot of guys are coming down to a three-quarters and somewhere around there. You watch Drew Smiley pitch, and he's up there. He's coming from a very high arm slot, like an 11 o'clock arm slot, Uh, if you think about it like a clock, and he's coming from that. So he's able to pitch and drive down through the baseball, and that's what he's... Right now he's commanding and executing his pitches extremely well because he's throwing that high spin rate fastball up in the zone, and then he's throwing that change-up down to both sides, and then he's got that hybrid pick. he's got a uh, a slutter he's got a slider cutter basically he changes speeds on it a little bit but he's able to use that to both sides of the plate too so he's making you think about up down he's making you think about in and out and that's and right now he's executing all of his pitches very well especially the changeup i mean we don't really know what he could do with it because he never he's never really used it and right now it's like he's always had this pitch and, and it's looking really good now i mean the strikeout rate's really up he's allowing fewer hits and innings pitched everything is well above career norms so obviously some regressions coming here but it's it's fun to watch him pitch right now he's he's the best pitcher on that staff
0: I think your last comment raises an interesting question about the regression is coming. And we, we, we always say that with a great amount of certainty, especially with regard to more luck-based type of things. But strikeouts, uh, we tend to think of as more of a skill-based thing. And, and if a pitcher, in this case, you say he's using his, his change up more and more effectively, he's improved his command of it, whether it's a new pitch or a previously poor pitch, it's a fundamental change that, don't you think, could allow us to change our baseline expectations of a pitcher...
1: Yeah, I mean, but this is one of the reasons why I track new pitches every spring. I, you know, the, we had it up uh, of the Fangraphs, had the new pitch leaderboard. It's been three years running. I've tracked this because, especially first time through the league, you're so used to seeing a guy do something, uh, things one way, and if he adds a new pitch, that could help. I mean, Chris Archer last night throwing the changeup, clearly Baltimore was not ready for it. They had some very uncomfortable swings because they had never seen him do it before. Now, what happens next time he faces Baltimore? Is that still going to be the same now that they know it's there? And same thing with Drew Smiley right now. I mean, he's gone through, he did it to the Yankees, he did it to the Red Sox, uh uh, he faced toronto toronto uh got to him but again toronto if we think if we going back to the porcello issue toronto just rakes lefty so it was it's one of these situations you knew that was going to be a bad start for uh for smiley and it was and he did good against cleveland as well so if you're if you throw something new at people it, it's going to take them they're not going to be able to adjust in game like they can't go back to the dugout and say yo what." Uh, Smiley's throwing change ups. What are we going to do now? And, you know, they've got to go back and look at it. It's the first time you've seen anything. And it's, anytime you see something new like that, you're going to have time, difficulty adjusting to it. So when I talk about regression, I'm talking more about the second time through the AL East, uh, if there is a third time. Because let's not forget, he missed time last year because of a shoulder issue that people thought he was going to have to have surgery on. He never had the surgery on it. I, you know, I don't, as, as somebody who has suffered through multiple shoulder injuries, those things really never go away. Um, so I am I am uh, hesitant to throw 100, 170 inning total on on Drew Smiley by the year's end. I and the, at least the Rays have plenty of depth. and they called up Blake Snell and set him back down after the game because they don't need a fifth starter right now. But uh, they've got the depth and that's kind of the insurance policy that Chris listed in ALT out wars. He has Blake Snell on his on his reserve list now because he drafted him in the draft because he also took Smiley. Um, So that's really my my bigger concern is can he hold up? Um, Because the regression you have to expect what you've gotten now has been great. Um, But you know the skills were there in 2014. And it's just a matter of can he hold up? That's really the only hesitation I have with him is can he hold up for 30 starts?
0: Are there any other things that a pitcher can do that give you confidence that any change of level of performance for the better is for real? You mentioned this this pitch mix thing is a very real thing. A, a pitcher is obviously going to be more effective if he can get the ball over where he hasn't been able to before with a certain pitch or you know, com- command it better or whatever the case might be. Are there any other skills that a pitcher can demonstrate to you that would make you say, I believe that this increase in strikeouts or this uh, increase in, in control is for real.
1: I mean, for me, I'm, I'm a huge fan of first pitch strikes. If you look at the data, what happens once a, count, once a guy gets into an 0-1 count versus a 1-0 count, it's huge. So it, it's like we know from the start that a pitcher is going to win the battle 70% of the. Well, actually, the, since the league-wide batting average is now 250, 75% of the time, the pitcher is going to win this battle anyhow, right? So if we get to an O1 count, all of a sudden the league-wide batting average on counts after they've gone to O1 is something like 180. So if you can, but if you go to 10, it's 285. not exact numbers, but that's the that's the swing. It's about a ninety point difference, and that kind of gets exacerbated as you go out in the count. But if I can find a pitcher that understands, hey, if I get ahead one, uh, if I get ahead 0-1 in the count, I have the advantage here, and they can start throwing first pitch strikes at 66 percent of that is 65 percent or up is kind of the marker that I use first pitch strikes. I want to see guys that can do that, uh, and, and if they're making that change within the season. So if somebody comes out in one in one game to like 52 percent, but we can see some progress. They're starting to throw more first pitch strikes. Um, that's kind of a, a tiebreaker that I use if I'm looking at a couple of guys. Show me the guy that's show me the guy that's getting ahead early in the count because it allows him to use all of his pitches. Because especially the young kids, I mean, you're not going to see a lot of young kids snap off a two one curveball or a two one changeup because that's a pitch that they think is their third best pitch. It's something they use as, as a chase pitch to get guys to expand the zone when they're in two strike mode but if I can get ahead one, two, then I can use that third I've got three pitches at my disposal uh, versus just two. So To me, that's one of the other skills I like to track.
0: You mentioned uh, first pitch strikes. Are you uh, Do you differentiate between swinging strikes and called strikes as a general metric for pitcher effectiveness? I know some do, some don't.
1: I'm a bigger fan of the swinging strikes because that means the batter thinks I can get I can hit that pitch like I mean when you think of uh, the called strike maybe I was look I was looking out and you snuck one in on me or I was looking to protect the inner half and you snuck a fastball away on me but if I'm swinging at it that means I thought I knew where it was going to be and I still couldn't get to it especially swinging strikes uh, up in the zone we think you know, I, I've mentioned spin rate a couple of times when we think about Chris Young the pitcher I mean the 85 miles an hour how was he getting fastballs by guys it's because they think they see a fastball coming out of the letters, it's 85, or I'm going to tee on it. And it, as, because it's got so much spin to it, it's just kind of changing that plane of the swing. So you think it's on one plane, and it actually comes in on another, and you come up, you either pop it up in the air, you swing and miss at it, things like that. So I'm a big fan of the swing and strike.
0: You mentioned Blake Snell. Uh, what was your opinion of his, uh, his start?
1: I liked it a ton. I mean, the, the the breaking ball is, it. we don't see a lot of breaking balls like that. It looked like Barry Zito. Uh, now, imagine Barry Zito's curveball with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Barry Zito never had that, and that's what Blake Snell was showing. I mean, the first inning had a little bit of jitters, but after that, it uh, looked terrific. Uh, and really, and the Yankees have had their issues against left-handed pitchers this Pitchers this year, but Blake Snell earned that earned that performance because the curveball was—he's getting guys like McCann, getting guys like Gardner. Um, it was fun to watch him pitch, and it truly. The one and done situation is because the way the race, the race have something like eight or nine off days in their first 50 days on the calendar, so they don't need a fifth starter until May 10th. It would be a really nice story if they called him back up because on May 10th they're facing Seattle in Seattle, which is where Blake Snell is from. Um, so that'll be a nice story. Um, but I don't, people have asked me, hey, when's he going to come up the stick? I, I truly don't know because they could send him right back down after that because they've got more off days. And, and I think there's another one. I don't think they need a full-time fifth starter until something like May 24th. Just the way the schedule works out this year.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette. And Jason, you're also very active on Twitter. And in the aftermath of the Chris Colabello PED suspension, you tweeted a note about Jesus Montero. And he's having a, a pretty good start in AAA for the Blue Jays.
1: Yeah, it, you know, Toronto always seems to find somebody that can do something that everybody expects. Like, hey, how did this happen? I mean, let's not forget um – how they just a couple of Colabello now that we know but last year like he pick him up off waivers this kind of thing happens uh, you know different like Steve Delabar. let's go ahead and get him from for nothing and Steve Delabar did well for uh, he made the All-Star team do well for a little bit but they always seem to find guys you know, Kevin Pillar look at last year nobody thought that was happening and look what he was able to do um, and different kinds of things like that and then Montero they pick him up and Roger Center is always going to be a nice hitting environment so it, they're going to need somebody to fill in that role Um, in that lineup, and if Montero, if they can do something with him, uh, then possibly that's an opportunity. Right now, Ezekiel Carrera is taking advantage of it. He had a a heck of a weekend, uh, started off uh, this this period really nice uh, yesterday, too. So you know he's on a nice little run, so maybe it's his job. I ended up buying him uh, in towers over the weekend in free agent bidding because I'm the I'm the Michael Saunders owner, so it's nice to have an insurance policy for his fragile legs. Um, but he ended up not needing to go on the DL and then played last night, so I have both guys this week. Um, so maybe it's Ezekiel Carrera that comes out, but Montero he's doing well down in AAA, but he did start well last year too. Uh, but again, better hitting environment. Now he's got a clear path. Last year he really didn't uh, in Seattle. And now there's an opportunity if the Carrera fire cools off, maybe it's maybe it's Montero that's next.
0: Well, from your lips to God's ear, he's on my reserve list in tout. Uh, also on Twitter, you talked about Logan Morrison of the Rays. He had some positive tout mojo coming into 2016, but really hasn't lived up to it. And I have two questions about that. First, don't you think positive tout mojo would be a good name for a progressive rock album? And more to the point, What's up or not up with Logan Morrison?
1: Uh, um, yeah, I've started to call him no-mo, because I, I do not want him on my team, no-mo. Uh, it is uh, not pretty. Uh, so with him, he's, you know, and Jason Hanselman is one of the guys that writes with me at the process report. He did a really good job of, of breaking down uh, him uh, on a, uh, a player card thing project we did over the, over the offseason. And if Morrison can focus on staying within the strike zone, he's serviceable. But if he tries to expand his strike zone, which is what he's been doing a ton this season, he's not serviceable. So I believe he's made two hard contact balls all season, um, and he's something like four for 48. Uh, Just the numbers aren't pretty, but it's his own doing. He's expanding the strike zone. Uh, And so I think he's – not that many people were starting him anyhow, uh, but he's losing playing time to Steve Pierce. Uh, It was a strict platoon, but we're starting to see Pierce go in against some some of the righties that Morrison uh, would have been facing. And If the Raiders weren't already paying James Loney $8 million not to play for them this year, I think Morrison would already be gone. So if we think back to um, when Hideki Matsui was on this team uh, and Pat Burrell, and they got off the bad starts in, in 2009 and 2012, both guys were gone by this time. Uh, yet Morrison's still there, and, and still there despite uh, a, a more... A talented bat in Richie Schaefer down in AAA, the guy we saw play for them last year. Schaefer's doing well down in AAA Durham, too. Um, and so the, you know, they, they could put, let Pierce play and then use Schaefer in some situations. Um, Morrison's going to have to get something going here because I don't think he's long for this roster if he keeps this up.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette. And Jason, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about some studs and duds they've identified in the major leagues. Any rationale is fine, whatever you want to talk about it. But the general gist is, a stud is a guy you wouldn't mind having on your roster, and a dud is a guy you definitely don't. So let's start with the hitters. In the American League, who's a stud hitter that has caught your eye?
1: Colby Rasmus. Um don't ever underestimate the power of the Waffle House. Um, he is a big fan. I had a, a story from someone who said that Corey, uh, Colby Rasmus is a huge fan of the Waffle House. So the fact that they have some in Houston uh, is a big thing for him. We always joked that maybe he would go to Atlanta to go play for the Braves because they have a Waffle House inside of Turner Field. Um, but Rasmus says, while the, while the Astros have been off to a terrible start this year, and some other guys are not hitting in that lineup. It's not Rasmus's fault. The, you know, the batting average is well above where he, where it's been in a number of years, but the power is big. I mean, he's already has seven home runs this year and has driven in an eighteen, and that's a tremendous start for a guy that most people had projected for twenty-three homers. Isn't
0: in the National League, how about a stud over there?
1: Um, I'm a right now. So we think everybody's talking about Bryce Harper and the home runs he's hitting. But if you were to look at weight, if you look at the weighted on weighted on base average leaderboard for the National League right now, number one is Dexter Fowler. Um, Dexter Fowler is a guy that I could not stop talking about last year. I said when he went to the Cubs, he was going to score a ton of runs, jump on him. He did. He scored a ton of runs. Um, it, the fact that Baltimore was not able to get him made the AL East fan of me extremely happy because I, I still remain a big Dexter Fowler fan. And what he's doing here out of the gate shows, is backs it up. He's hitting for a great average, scoring a ton of runs in front of that lineup. Um, he may even exceed last year's production. So right now, uh, Dexter Fowler is, is, is the man in the National League.
0: And-, and switching to the duds, how about an American League hitter you think is maybe a little overbought right now, or just generally a guy you're not interested in having on your roster? Uh,
1: well, it's going to be more the former, because I do have him on my roster. It's Carlos Gomez with the Astros. Gomez has been terrible. Uh, he he closed out last year terrible. We thought maybe it was because of, uh, of the hip uh, the issues and everything, but he has not looked good out of the gate. Uh, he is Um, he was our uh, Paul and I we drafted him in the fourth round of labor towards the back end and and he is not performing well
0: and in the National League a dud
1: because of the money you invested in him, Joey Votto I mean Votto was not getting out of the second round and Joey Votto right now and there's a lot of first base in this category right now is not doing well Fielder's not doing well uh, you mentioned Cabrera getting the homers, uh, the two homers, but up to that, he's looked bad. And Joey Votto's been right there with him for what we spent on Votto. And it's not like he's, you know, people have always been on him, hey, you need to expand your strike zone, so go do that. These numbers aren't because he's chasing bad pitches or anything. In fact, pitchers are throwing him more strikes, uh, now than anything, but he's, the production is just not there for him.
0: Jason Collette's uh, hitters for studs and duds: uh, an American League stud hitter, Colby Rasmus of Houston. His National League stud hitter is Dexter Fowler of the Cubs. His dud hitter in the American League, Carlos Gomez of Houston, and his National League dud, Joey Votto of the Reds. Uh, Jason, let's move over to the mound. In the American League, who's the stud pitcher you like?
1: in the most recent outing, really backed this up. But Taiwan Walker looks like a new guy this year. Taiwan Walker struck out 11 Astros in his most recent outing. I walked one guy, I believe. He's um, hitting 97, really showing a nice up, um, Throwing three pitches for strikes, he looks looks terrific. And this is a guy that I have. Um, slagged on for quite a bit for a number of years i've called him edwin jackson 2.0 uh but he started showing signs last year of becoming that guy and and going back to the point i made about porcello feeling like he's been around forever that's been the case for walker too yet this is his third full season in the major league Um, and so when you think about you know guys that have people want to talk about the breakout season at age 26 or 27 a lot of it has more to do with the guy came up early, and now he's finally uh, getting that experience. And I think that's Walker's situation. Here's here's his – last year was his first full season in the major leagues. And so this year, you know, he's uh, he's another guy that he made some tweaks, added some – changed his change-up grip. He's throwing a different type of change-up this year. I think I had him three different times on a new pitch tracker this year because he made some tweaks to different things. But if you watch him pitch last night, was was the pinnacle of it, just commanding, uh, commanding the strike zone with three pitches and and went right through the Astros lineup like it was nothing.
0: Well, when it comes to striking out, the uh, Astros lineup is pretty good in that regard. <laughs> if, you want, if, you, if you want to pick up some strikeouts, uh, pick a guy pitching against Houston if you can stand the risk of the, uh, of the home runs. How about in the National League? Who's the stud pitcher you like over there?
1: Uh, Kenta Maeda. I, I don't know if any of us saw this kind of start from Maeda. High ground ball rate. Uh, the dom rate's really high. Not walking anyone. I think he's given up one home run in four starts. You know, the, some of us were worried when that when that contract changed a little bit because after his physical, they were they something came up and they were like, okay, let's reduce that contract a little bit. But Dodgers got him in a steal. Um, and right now, coming out of the gate, he looks terrific. It's just amazing what he's going. I think he was a. Uh, 12 to $15 pitcher in NL Tout Wars, I think in Mixed League. I think he's around $10. I don't know for uh, for certain, uh, but he's been the ace of the National League.
0: Moving over to the Duds, how about an American League pitcher you think is going to represent a poor investment?
1: You know, the poor investment right now has been Michael Pineda. Michael Pineda, it's really strange to try to figure him out. For swings and misses, he has the third highest swings and miss total in all of baseball. But, He's giving, he cannot keep the ball in the yard. He's giving up more hits than endings pitched. So the strikeouts are there, but he can't command his pitches. And this is when you see a guy with a lot of swinging strikes, a lot of strikeouts and then can't keep the ball in the yard and giving up a ton of hard contact, it all comes back to command. So the stuff is there for him, but he cannot command it. You go back and watch that game on Saturday against Tampa Bay. You know They launched four home runs off him, and none of them were cheap. They were all no-doubters right off the bat. And watch the catcher's glove. You see the catcher set up low and away, and that fastball drifts up and in. Kaboom, it's out of here. So he can't command his stuff. Even then, he's still getting strikeouts, so right now he's been an absolute terrible investment because he's killing you in ratios, but that's somebody that I would try to pick up on the down low.
0: Oh, so not as much of a dud as you might uh, expect from that uh, pessimistic opening.
1: Well, you got to look, when, you, when somebody's this bad, if they're getting the strikeouts like that, but they can't keep the ball in the yard, those types of things, It's like it's worth kicking the tires to see, okay... Michael Paneda, so that 720 Erie and 159 ratios, so how do you feel about him? Fine, I'll give you, uh, I want this guy, okay, fine. I'm willing to take a shot on him, now I'll pay 70 cents on the dollar, I'm not paying anywhere near what he was worth on draft day, but for somebody who's still missing bats despite not having his good stuff, I'm willing to take a chance.
0: I imagine in some shallower leagues they might even be dropping him, and he might be available in a free agent pool. Who's a National League dud pitcher for you?
1: Adam Wainwright uh, and I, I'm I'm worried. That does not look good. Uh, when you you know he's an older guy. We knew you know these guys don't hold up forever. But Adam Wainwright, the stuff just does not look the same out of the gate. Uh, and he's not doing good now. If you ask me to take which 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 one of these guys do I want to take a shot on the rest of the way, I know Wainwright's got the better track record. But right now, Pineda's at least missing bats, and Wainwright's not even doing that.
0: Jason Collette, studs and duds on the mound of, in the American League, a stud pitcher, Taiwan Walker of Seattle, his National League stud, Kenta Maeda of the Dodgers. In the American League, his dud pitcher, Michael Pineda of the Yankees, and his National League dud is Adam Wainwright. Jeez, uh, Jason, this has been great. Uh, before I let you go, uh, you tweeted out not long ago uh, a really nice picture looked like from behind the plate at the new ballpark in Charlotte where you live. Uh, tell us about that ballpark, and have you seen any top Knights prospects or anybody coming through? That was uh, exciting for you to see.
1: Yeah, that's BB&T Park. That was from opening night uh, back on the uh, the 14th. I went with my, my youngest brother. Uh, you can buy a standing room only seat for $8. And you can just stand right there on the concourse and watch games. It's a great park. I love going go back on Saturday night. Um, Tim Anderson plays uh, for them so right now he's the best prospect on that Charlotte Knights team and he's hitting leadoff which is nice the rest of the squad eh, not so much but uh, Anderson's worth watching because he's making some plays from shortstop and showing off the arm and the speed um, that Chicago White Sox fans will get to enjoy here in short order
0: it's been fascinating talking with you as always tell us where listeners can get more from Jason Collette
1: Sure. On Twitter, at Jason Colette two L's, two T's, E at the end. Very active at night. Uh, not so active during the day because I do have to pay the bills and hanging out on Twitter is not part of that. <laughs> and then on, on weekends, my Collette Calls column. By the way, that name came from when I was a teacher. My students used to call me, hey, Mr. Collette Calls. So that's where the column name comes from. Uh, that runs on Saturdays over at Rotowire.
0: And it's a terrific Twitter feed. I, I love your Twitter feed because you have a, because you do so much flying. You've titled your feed "Up in the Air," and you have the uh, the uh, George Clooney avatar from the from that movie where he was a, uh, I think he was getting a, a million miles or something like that. It was a good little movie, and uh, your your pithy comments about U.S. air travel are. Leaving aside the baseball, they're just really fun to read. Anybody who's ever flown, especially if you've flown regularly for business earning, you should be following Jason just for that because I love those things. I think they're great. Uh, Jason? I
1: didn't enjoy the baseball running so much. I truly would start some kind of travel blog. Like If people haven't already heard of this one, passengershaming.com is always a great one to follow because they take pictures of people doing crazy stuff on airplanes like taking off their socks and hanging them in the window to dry or putting their bare feet up <laughs> on things. It, that one always makes me laugh, but yeah, I would start something along those lines about ludicrous observations that I've made at the airport or security lines or any of the other stuff um, that I've had to do on travel. Um, I just I don't have the time to, to do both things, but I could do a whole podcast on travel adventures.
0: What's the name you have for those people who, when the then uh, the pre-boarding announcement comes up, everybody the the guys in zone six who are like like. The very last people to board, they jump up and stand right by the front waiting like, for 45 minutes to get out. What do you call those guys you have a name for? Them?
1: Gate lice. They're oh. subhuman is what <laughs> yeah. they are. They drive me insane. I mean, I, I, am, I will admit I am a spoiled traveler. When I travel this much, you get privileges. One of my privileges is I get to board early. What I don't like is having to walk through 50 people that are holding zone 3 passes when I've got zone 1. It's like, sit down, get out of the way, or at least stand out to the side But these gate lice. My always I, uh, Every now and then you'll see me take a picture of somebody, because I'll get to the gate about an hour beforehand, and there's always this one guy who's standing <clears throat> right there at the front of the line waiting to, waiting to board 35 minutes before they even make an announcement. And if you're standing there, you know you're in first class anyhow, so you're going to get your seat, you're going to get your bag above you. There's nothing that could possibly go wrong for you if you've got that first class seat, but there'll be two or three guys standing there just waiting for them to make the announcement. I just don't get these people. They drive me insane. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I see these people as soon as the the, the uh, gate agent picks up the microphone, they start like barreling towards the gate like it's going to be a free for all, and you know it's going to be like festival seating at at a Rush concert or something. And uh, <laughs> and uh, hey, everybody, there's a number on your seat. Relax. And the other thing that really bugs me about people on planes in general is when you get down to your to your seat in row 15. And some yutz who's down in 22 has stuck his suitcase in your overhead bin, to, and it's the size of a refrigerator box with a with a handle gaff tape to it. And, and you're looking around going, well, who owns this thing? And, of course, it's some guy who just dropped it off halfway because that's how he likes picking it up on the way out. And never mind that he's completely inconveniencing everybody else on the airplane. It's just the way things go with people who travel. It drives me nuts, too, and I don't travel near as if much as you. you think your
1: children are self? if you think your toddlers and young children are selfish, you've seen nothing until you've spent a lot of time on airplanes.
0: <laughs> Jason, thank
1: it's The most myopic atmosphere that I hang out in.
0: <laughs> Jason, it's been a real treat to have you on the show. Lots of great information, lots of fun as well. And, of course, I can't recommend your writing and your Twitter feed highly enough. Thanks a million, Jason. Really do appreciate it. All right,
1: thanks. Enjoyed it.
0: Jason Collett writes for roto the process report. And when we come back, we'll have a little head-to-head action with Brent Hershey of BaseballHQ.com. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! What a Blade play! Wise makes the catch! What a play by Wise! Mercy! What a play-by-wise. Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this
2: game. Alexei! Yes! 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 Yes!
1: Yes! History! HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. We have Brent Hershey coming up, but first, let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, our Playing Time Today coverage looks at Trevor Bauer's opportunity in replacing Carlos Carrasco in Cleveland. Our daily minor league call-ups report looks at recent call-ups like Alex Meyer of the Twins, Michael Feliz of the Astros, and many other recent call-ups. Ryan Bloomfield's Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage looks at Todd Frazier, Garrett Richards, Dustin Pedroia, and more. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has full team and player news analysis player performance validation, daily matchups reports, and a daily fantasy dashboard, minor league scouting, and of course, all the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our second Tuesday Tout. He's the general manager for content at BaseballHQ.com. Brent Hershey, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Good to be back. Uh, Brent, uh, you've signed up this year for the inaugural season of the Tout Wars head to head competition. And before we talk about how you approached it, how you dealt with uh, the various aspects of head to head that might be a little different from standard rotisserie, give us a quick overview of the rules of how Tout head to head has worked.
2: Yeah, it's a little, uh, it's certainly a little different. And um, there are there's been discussions <laughs> within our group since we've met. Uh, about how exactly some of the rules go, but the idea is this: is that uh, they try to we're tr- we're trying to emulate a 162 game season. I think the actual game number uh, of points works out to 164, 166, and they're divided um, into into weeks. Um, which each week there is basically uh, six points at stake. Um, it's a five by five league, so the the team that wins the most uh hitting categories gets two points or gets two wins and uh the other gets two losses the team that uh on the other side the pitching points same thing two wins or two losses and then the whole 10 categories whoever has the most uh whoever wins the most categories gets two wins and the other team gets two losses any any ties in there uh they you know they split so if it's a the 5-5 split or something like that then each uh each team gets one and one in the overall um so that's so that's how it so that's how it goes i think there's 20 there's uh 23 or 24 um weeks during the season and then there's also a rotisserie aspect to it where uh the points are also being accumulated just as a normal rotisserie league um And then there are a certain number, which I'm not exactly, I forget exactly, but I have it in front of me, is there's a a number of wins and losses at stake in the first half as one block, and in the second half as a second block, and then as the overall uh, league in the third block. So uh, there's lots of different things uh, going on (laughs) there, um, which makes it uh, interesting uh, as far as approaching it as well. Um, I will say the one other the one other thing is the categories are a bit uh different um some of them are a bit different uh we use um uh, on base percentage like uh like the tout wars does uh home runs as one uh run score and then a net steals category um so in each week if you have one guy that gets caught stealing once and and uh you know one other person that steals one base, you come out with a net zero um, on that. And on the pitching side, uh, it is wins plus quality starts, uh, ERA, whip, um, uh, strikeouts per nine innings, uh, another ratio category, and net saves, again, saves minus blown saves for your whole team. So uh, there's some interesting aspects to this league for sure.
0: You know, when I played a head-to-head uh, league years ago, we just did it that the, we played four by four rather than five by five, and our rule was you went head-to-head against the other guy, whoever however it was scheduled, and uh, whoever for each category you won against the other guy, you got a win. So you know, in a week you could win eight games, or you could win zero, or usually it was some kind of split down the middle in that way, and and. Uh, uh, the 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 addition of the uh, overall rotisserie aspect really seems to throw a wrench into the planning because you're kind of running two races on one track. How did the format, these rules, affect you in targeting players for your draft and uh, and thinking about how you wanted to build a roster?
2: Um, I I focus the the ratio of the points is more um is is, is more towards the actual head to head.
0: The head-to-head
2: action or whatever, uh, so I, I worried more about that, um, and in the end, uh, I mean it's sort of it's sort of just getting good players. Now I did uh, we had um, we have uh, David Martin uh, writes for Baseball HQ on specific head-to-head uh, format and has has had some interesting articles over the years, uh, the past several years, uh, with regards to team building and head-to-head and how kind of focusing on guys that do uh, that that do the same thing well um, gives you more of a base to work from each week um, rather than kind of uh, spreading it out and so um, given that given that again how some of these how the scoring format the kind of six points or six games per week worked out um, there's almost an essence that you can almost you know punt a category if you're sure that you're strong on the other other ones um so that that did affect my approach a little bit um thinking about that but in you know in the end uh i think we're just trying to get good players that sort of thing
0: so, when you say you can punt a category did you at draft like did you just not get stolen base guys or not get particular types of players and load up on other types of players figuring instead of taking the zero in the category you'll take the loss every week in order to increase your chances of getting more wins because you your added strength in other categories who who did you draft
2: um i didn't I didn't follow through as much i i although um because again the even though it is a smaller portion of it, you do have that end of year sort of thing. I, I the the you know the accumulating categories uh, for the halves and the and the end of the year. I, you know, I, it, it's sort of new, and I think we're all gonna. It's interesting to see how uh, the format works out. I for me for me I didn't I focused more on power bats, and while I got some guys that I thought might help in steals, I didn't. Pay quite as much attention to that um aspect of it, and worked more on you know on base percentage and, and big power guys um and and that's sort of played out i think both i think both uh, we've had we've just had two scoring periods because the first two weeks uh, basically played as one um but I believe in both of the scoring periods uh like I you know, lost the stolen base, the net steals category, um, but had one the other ones, um, so it it didn't affect me that way. But I, it does make some interest for some interesting strategic uh, choices. I think if you if you wanted to sort of test it and, and, and take it take it to the extreme.
0: I always thought that uh, if you tried the tactic of punting a category like steals, that the guy that you're playing against could look at your roster and go, he's got no stolen bases here at all. I'll bench my Billy Burns and I'll bench my Billy Hamilton guys who are specialist players because I've got, you know, uh, a guy who even might pick me up one or two as a general all round player, Mookie bats or somebody like that is going to get me just the one stolen base. I need to win the category. And in, in, in that respect, maybe the tactic would fail because it's so easily countered in the tactical play week to week.
2: Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, we, there's not huge, uh, we have, um, uh, six man reserves, I think. And so there's depending, uh, that, that may or may not be, uh, applicable that way as far as, as, as far as would that be able to be, would you be able to pull that off in, in those instances? But, uh, but I think you're right. And I mean, there, there is that chance that it could it could play out that way
0: now are you all playing in one big league like the major leagues used to be or are you broken up into divisions where you play your own divisional rivals a little more often
2: no it's it's one big uh it's one big league of uh 12 teams you know we play one other team each week that kind of thing but there's uh you yeah, know there's one uh it's one it's old school in that way as far as uh, one whole league
0: after the two scoring periods how are you doing
2: I uh am perfect. <laughs> uh so it's just two periods but I'm 12 and 0. Um so I've swept, you know, I've uh, in each scoring period won uh each of those uh categories and there is uh one other can uh one other of my competitors Jeff Zimmerman uh who was also 12 and 0 and uh fate would have it we're meeting this week. Uh so that w- that'll be an interesting uh thing and and fun to follow so so far uh yeah it has it has uh been successful uh as much as you you know can bank on that um uh, you know just a couple weeks in but uh so it's certainly fun in that aspect of uh following these guys every week
0: who do you have on your team who are your big hitters who are are your top pitchers
2: yeah um i have uh vado joey vado who obviously is um hasn't done it yet. His on-base percentage is, is uh, on base under 300 so far, but, uh, but I spent a good bit of... Uh, we had a $260 auction. I spent, uh, spent I think, $38 on him. Um, so he's, he's won uh, Robinson Cano. Obviously had a great uh, kind of start and has helped a good bit. Um, Mookie Betts has won. Uh, Dexter Fowler is someone that I got uh, fairly cheap that's been doing well on the hitting side. Uh, Two, and on the on the pitching side, um, I've had more guys that have just done well uh, that that you know may not be in the sort of stud category. Um, Razziel Ro- Iglesias has pitched well. Uh, Marcus Stroman, Drew Smiley, uh, Cole Hamels, uh, Jerry uh, Familia. Um, so so far they've uh, and I had uh, Vince Velasquez on reserve, <laughs> which. Um for the for his of course had him and, and kept him on reserve for his big sixteen strikeout uh game and put him in last week and he didn't do as well. Um uh, but uh but yeah, it's uh it's been it's been a fun group to uh to track for sure.
0: Cole Hamill's missed last night's start supposed to be just a groin small groin thing he's had before so uh, I have him on my team as well he's my ace in fact so I hope he gets back uh, quickly based uh, Brent on what you've learned from your limited experience of the season so far what do you think you might have done differently at the draft had you g- been given a do-over and had the, uh, had the knowledge of now then?
2: Um, it's a little tough to say but I, I am interested in uh, uh, the, the this Jeff Zimmerman who I'm from Fangraphs, who I'm uh, playing this week, um, uh, did an interesting sort of strategy of of sort of given the ratio categories in uh, in the pitching side of of sort of going reliever heavy um, there. Uh, now he has a couple he has a couple aces, I think maybe Jose Fernandez and Scherzer, but it's not. Um, but I, but I wonder about there is a there is a minimum innings pitched um, for for the rotisserie oriented portions of the thing. You, know, you have to have so many innings pitched by in the first half and in the second half and in the whole year. And I, I wonder about uh, if it would be possible, given that there's uh, K through nine and ERA and WHIP, of of just of sticking to almost relievers only big you know big K relievers big K through nine reliever only um, and whether that whether whether you could do do well do as well in the in the weekly uh, games that it may you know that, that it would not that even taking uh, a hit if you didn't reach the the um, innings limit. it uh, where that would benefit you, I don't know. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to to see how that plays out. And you have, you know, obviously you have a week to weeks if you're getting near the end of the first half and you need a bunch of uh, innings. There's there's ways to kind of supplement that. But uh, but he did that more. <coughs> he did that more than the rest of us who did more of a balanced staff. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see uh, how that works out. So I might uh, I might if I had a do over, I might have uh, explored that for myself a little bit. More um, just to, you know, it's again, it's an experimental league just to see uh, if that would be possible.
0: So there's no innings minimum per week?
2: There's no innings minimum per week, no.
0: Because that would change that that uh, in a big hurry, and you'd you'd think in a head to head league they should have a weekly innings minimum just to create a more realistic simulation of what goes on in a in an actual major league week. You're supposedly playing eight games; you should have a minimum of seventy two innings. You'd think.
2: No, right, and that's and that's the thing. Um, sort of afterwards, I wondered about if that was if that would have been a fun loophole to sort of explore to see uh, if if that was possible. But no, there's no innings you know, there's no innings limits per week. So a couple of you know a couple of Yankee bullpenner guys <laughs> uh, you know, doing doing well and, and and especially with the K through nine as opposed to just straight strikeouts, um, you know, it could seem like that that, that could that could carry you some some of those weeks. Uh but get but again it would be sort of all these strategies are great if you get the right players (laughs) to
0: make it work. A little easier, though, wouldn't you think, to to adopt a mostly or all reliever strategy, because we know who those guys are, and they're actually pretty plentiful. It's like, uh, you know, just off the top of your head, you could probably think of 10 or 15 decent relievers who are going to uh, really ring up some pretty excellent ERA whip ratios and, uh, and are going to be really strong K9, and they don't have to be closers. A lot of teams have now two, three setup guys who or in that 11, 12, 13 strikeouts per nine. Uh, yeah, it seems like a loophole that maybe it'd be fun to exploit, but really ought to be addressed in the interest of, you know, verisimilitude. Uh, one of the things, Brent, that uh, head-to-head aficionados like about the format, in my experience, is that they find it's harder to fall way out of the race fairly early in a, in a season, unlike regular rotisserie, where if you're, you know, 9th, 10th, 11th, and you can see big gaps forming in the categories, you kind of think to yourself, hey, it's Memorial Day and I'm finished. And a lot of times, especially for guys who play multiple leagues, they just throw that league away, which has an effect, uh, a sort of a cascade or follow-on effect with the rest of the race because they're not doing their waiver moves, they're not replacing injured guys, they're not taking guys out of the pool and so forth. Can you see the race in this format that you're playing being tighter and therefore more engaging and involving for players than in maybe your own past rotisserie experience?
2: I, I have a hunch. Um, again, it's hard to tell with just uh, sort of these two periods. Um, I mean, it's, it's the the standings now are stratified. The bottom teams just have two and three wins, kind of after you know, after these twelve games or whatever. But I but I I think my understanding is that the that this sort of Roto, the traditional Roto component, even though it's like first half by itself, second half by itself and the whole year, uh, sort of serves that purpose, uh, because there'll be, I think once we get to the end of the season, even those teams that have done well in the week to week, uh, in the week to week portion may, you know, may not necessarily be the top teams in the overall, um, in the overall portion of it. Uh, and so I, and I sort of, I sort of wonder, I have a hunch that even kind of that last week we won't really, uh, it'll be or at least it'll be confusing to try to figure out <laughs> how how it's gonna, uh, how it's gonna end up. So I think that's, I think that's sort of the idea behind, um, behind combining in, in a sense those two scoring formats. Um, and again, those will be scored like uh, you know if uh, you'll get as many you'll get you know, 12 wins for uh, finishing first in and runs or whatever and right. for all the other categories. but I have a hunch that that, that is going to help uh, alleviate that, uh, that situation where uh, guys are out of it and, and that sort of thing.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if what you'll find is that the the race within just the, the head-to-head part is going to be a lot tighter than people expect it to be because even uh, unlike in re- regular roto, A team with poor guys or a lot of injuries has had those kind of things can still luck into wins, you know, in a way that you just can't, even if you have a really good week and you're in 10th place and, you know, uh, some banjo hitter gets into the lineup and hits three home runs and you go, "Hey, way to go for me. But it doesn't help because you're so far back in the category and in the overall that even a lucky week by a few of your players, a no hitter from one of your pitchers or something can't help. But in this format, it can help. You can actually win a week, pick up some games and make some progress progress in a way that you can't. It's a that's the to me that's the really attractive thing about it. I'm really uh, looking forward to following this race uh, during the year at uh, tellwarscom I think it's going to be very interesting to follow and I'll pick up with you during the year about it. Before I let you go, uh, last week your GM's office column at baseballhq.com looked at the whole idea of this uh, expression you can win a trade by getting the best player in the deal. And I don't want to have you reread the whole column here or anything, but has that ever been true? Always been true? And is it still true?
2: Well, I think I think oftentimes when we go about, uh, when I get questions or people pose questions to me about uh, fantasy trades, especially, um, that that's that sort of a that, that is sort of a phrase that we sort of keep in mind and throw around uh, sometimes. And I, I I think it it is. I mean, there's always exceptions. You know, if you're uh, you know if you're if you're trading away Mike trout to get three uh, I don't know you know closes at the end to kind of make up your your saves thing with you know four weeks left in the season or something like that uh, because it's going because that's going to win you a championship that may be a uh, difference but I think in in general that's often <clears throat> at least when I go to evaluate those things or people ask that that is a standard kind of uh, concept that I keep In in my mind, that it's uh, you know these especially these superstar players that are uh, elite because they consistently produce at that high level uh, are going to do are oftentimes uh, you know do more uh, are more do do better for you in in the long run than than getting a collection of. Of uh, four or
0: five guys. You also cautioned in the column that in trades involving prospects, the best player in the deal might not be who we think in its immediate aftermath. And the example you used was the trade uh, Atlanta Arizona. They the uh, Braves sent Shelby Miller to the Diamondbacks and got back first overall pick Danby Swanson. At the time, it looked like Arizona might have got the best of the deal because Miller looked like the best player. He was in the lineup. He was in the major leagues, and he was contributing. But as we get a chance to see, uh, for, first of all, that Shelby Miller hasn't maintained that level of success, but second of all, that Danby Swanson looks like the real deal in the minor leagues. Maybe it turns out that the who we thought won the trade didn't win the trade.
2: Yeah, and that's part of it. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the, the genesis for the column for me came from uh, watching Swanson for a couple of days um, when a high A team uh, passed through the area here that uh, that he was on, and just being kind of uh, yeah, just really wowed and kind of impressed with uh, a lot of his baseball acumen and, and skills and all that. And it just, you know, I'm sorry for Diamondbacks fans, but it just, it just made me think, like, how would you, was just remained, like, kind of baffled. That was the first time I had seen him live, but I was sort of baffled at how an organization would, would give up a player like that a high you know the number 1 draft pick from just uh not even you know whatever 9 months ago um that has that has the skills that you pretty much fit exactly in the middle infield you know a very important spot at shortstop kind of thing um and so it's just uh that's in in seeing Swanson uh I certainly think he's he is going to be the when when you look at that uh deal um, maybe even just months from now, realize that he is kind of the, the best player in that. And, and that, yes, what you said is true, that when those – we can't always make those evaluations till years later when it's a current player for a prospect. Um, but those, those, uh, those best players in the deal often uh, – or not often, or can be uh, very different depending on when you're making that evaluation.
0: Yeah, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I guess is is what we're getting at. But what what the article and what you've just said makes me think is that it could be true that the best player in the deal means you won the deal. But depending on your team, depending on the context of the deal, you both could have ended up with the best guy because you may have had different aims for for outcomes. So, for instance, suppose uh, instead of uh, instead of the Danby Swanson going out getting Shelby Miller back, suppose they had got back Max Scherzer, or suppose they had got back Jose Fernandez, who was on the block at that time. Suppose they had got back a genuine ace, a guy who could really make a difference for them in in uh, this year, which I think they had aspirations to make the playoffs this year. And in the long run, they look at it and go, you know what? Danby Swanson turned out to be the next Alex Rodriguez, and you know, in the ten-year context, we probably didn't get the best player in the deal. But for what we needed right then, this was a hell of a deal for us and for them. And and it was kind of we both got the best player in the deal.
2: And that's uh, that's uh, certainly a fantasy applicable skill <laughs> to a negotiating skill when you uh, when you can uh, find those uh, perfect matches. Uh, you know, to bring it back to that fantasy aspect um, where um, where, yeah, that where, the, if it's a fit for each team and, um, you know, that it can be a sort of a, sort of a win-win, but certainly, yeah, I mean, that's the whole, <clears throat> the whole uh, crux of it is in this specific case, um, and this is even before, you know, we knew that, uh, that we know about chilling Miller's awful, whatever, first four starts or whatever, um, that, um, that it was uh that, that 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 it seemed uh, for a person for a person like myself who follows prospects and all that sort of thing, it seemed like a just a severe overpay that they would give up a player like that of that high regard and not get sort of a a Scherzer or a Fernandez type of of uh, ace. So uh, it, it it makes it interesting because just as in just as in fantasy trades, obviously the uh, MLB GMs all have. Uh, different understandings of value and, and what they're, um, you know, of what they're getting back. And that's what, that's what makes all this discussion so much fun.
0: And just for people who aren't aware, I don't follow prospects at all. I knew Danby Swanson was an outstanding prospect, and I just checked, and he's at uh, 900 OPS in the Carolina League, playing for Carolina in high A. The Arizona front office, well, well shall we say, uh, not impressing a lot of people so far. Brent Hershey, thanks a million for filling us in on head-to-head and on this idea of getting the best player. And for sure, we're going to keep uh, keep track of your team in this head-to-head league during the season and see how it all plays out. Thanks for joining us.
2: You bet. Uh, Thanks for having me, Patrick. I'll uh, be glad to come back anytime and discuss more.
0: Brent Hershey is the General Manager for Content at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season, our final Tuesday Tout edition of the year. I also want to thank our guests for this Tuesday Tout edition of the show, Jason Collette from RotoWire and The Process Report, and Brent Hershey, the General Manager of Content at BaseballHQ.com. They're both great guests with some terrific insights into the game, and they're both really nice guys, and as I always say, a business full of nice guys. And I only say that because it's true. I'm Patrick Abbott. I hope you enjoyed this two Tuesday Tout edition, and I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our last news and comment edition of the season. Then we return to once-a-week podcasts starting on Friday, May 6th with shows that will have all the news and comment plus the weekly expert guest interview. So thanks again for listening to the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.